The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Justin, fantastic to get you on Real Vision. Pleasure to be here. Listen, firstly, I'd love to just hear about your career because I love hearing about people's careers. You know, what made gave you the crazy idea of becoming an artist and, and what you do? And then we'll talk about your crypto journey and, and what you're doing now. But I'd love to hear about your career. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a great, it's a fun story. I, I've made music all my life. I play piano, um, drums and guitar, even sing sometimes um, since I was a kid. And in college, I was just kind of fascinated by the rise of electronic music, um, mainly because one of my roommates was Swedish. And of course, you know, the electronic music scene was, was exploding in Sweden. I actually went to Stockholm for one summer um, between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And that's when I knew I really wanted to be a DJ. Um, but it was kind of prior to the explosion, like the real explosion of dance music in the United States. It was still very much Europe focused. And, um, and that was when I just started taking all my time away from finance classes. I was studying, you know, derivatives and structured products at Washington St. Louis. And in all my free time, I was learning how to make, how to make dance music on my computer. Um, and that's kind of where the story all began. Um, I uploaded some things to YouTube and, and to social media that went viral and started playing, you know, performing at other colleges, making, you know, a thousand bucks to 3000 bucks a weekend. And eventually, you know, that rate kept going up and I, and I, my schoolwork couldn't keep up. And I decided to actually um, drop out of school my junior year um, to the dismay of my parents, but they weren't, they weren't paying for college. So they, they agreed to let me do it. Um, and I pursued my music career full time at that point. But, you know, always like to mention that, that my, my interest in, in the financial world and in, in FinTech kind of always existed um, behind the scenes, even, even through my decade long DJ career. So when did you, when did you make the shift full time into music? What year was that? So it would have been like between my sophomore and junior year of college. Junior year is when I started touring. Um, and like I would be basically traveling every single weekend to another university to play a show. And so it was just impossible to keep my grades up um, at that point. I had a pretty great GPA prior and that, that sank pretty quickly as, as DJing took over. <laughs> um, so junior year is when things got really busy and then I ended up leaving um, right before the end of my, you know, second semester of junior year. I never forget. I was living in Spain in the early two thousands from like 2005 to 2014. And it was like, it was the beautiful life. We were just, you know, I could look on the horizon, and see Ibiza. And, um, I, w I remember thinking, God, it's a fantastic, like everyone's having great fun. Where's the music scene. And I hadn't, really kind of put two and two together. I was going out to the club every weekend and it was right. and it was facing me in Ibiza and it was massive. I mean, oh, yeah. my God, that was a lot of fun. That whole period That was of time. the time, like 20, 2005 to 2014. Yeah, that, that's, that was an era. That was an era. Yeah, I mean, I even managed to get in the DJ booth because a friend of mine was a, was a well-known uh, DJ and producer called ATFC and I managed to be in the DJ booth at Pacha with <laughs> Bob Sinclair and a whole bunch of others, David Guetta. So yeah. I, I, that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, the classics, man. But that was all the stuff that inspired me to really start. And at the time, 
dance music just wasn't that really it wasn't as big in america it was kind of no. viewed as this like sub drug rave culture as opposed to like being mainstream acceptable and right around 2010 2011 david Guetta, calvin harris and avici really kind of set this you know the new momentum in the united states for dance music yeah so so you've now started the journey and you've suddenly found yourself popular <laughs> and you're now in the music scene full on what brings you to crypto suddenly because you know this is now you've got another swerve which i love the fact you start in derivatives you end up being a dj end up becoming really successful and then suddenly discover crypto en route what's that journey all about what's funny is like if i could if i could identify a common thread um between all the things that i do it's kind of economics and math where making music is very mathematical and, yeah. and very form, you know can be formulaic especially dance music so i've always kind of enjoyed the creative aspects of math and economics and then of course the more practical ones like fintech <laughs> um and so during my dj career i was playing a spring break event in mexico um in puerto vallarta in 2014 i was opening up for um for avici at the time who was a huge inspiration of mine and i met the winklevoss twins no way and became you know good friends with them they invited me to because they got into crypto by the way meeting somebody at pacha in ibiza exactly um <laughs> and, and, and i've chatted with him um i forget i forget the guy's name Az aziz or aziz, something I, f I forget the guy's name but right. um yeah the, the story is quite interesting because they got into crypto in, in in ibiza and i got into crypto in mexico through meeting them um <laughs> They were at the time, I think, building Gemini. I don't think Gemini had launched yet. And I was just fascinated with Bitcoin insofar as this idea of, you know, in the United States, we take it for granted, but most developing countries, it's very difficult to open up a bank account. So banking the unbanked was a huge, you know, personal interest in, in Bitcoin specifically. Frictionless tr value transfer 24-7 was quite exciting to me. And, and as somebody who had accumulated some, you know, decent wealth at a young age, 19, 20 years old, I couldn't, like, it was difficult for me to even get a mortgage, even though I could make, you know, more than the down payment, just because I had no credit history. And so like dealing with banks was already kind of a sensitive point of friction for me. Um, you know, my, my dad had to sign on to my first condo because I just didn't have the history, even though I can, I could have paid, you know, in full <laughs> and, um, but didn't Crazy. want to. And so, you know, I've, I've kind of had this bad history with the traditional banking system enter Bitcoin, having a background in finance and just being absolutely fascinated by it. And so at the time I, I you know, just purchased some Bitcoin, left it alone. Um, but from 2014 to 2017, really wasn't involved actively in the space whatsoever. It was more of a ancillary interest. Um, then, you know, fast forward to January of 2017, um, my friend Sander, who I was studying finance with um, at university, you know, we were graduated, of course, at this point, starts telling me about Ethereum. And I, you know, I think at the time Ethereum was trading uh, like $36 or something. I think I remember like that was maybe no my way. first Ethereum purchase. And I showed my dad, I was like, look how fast this is. Like, you know, Bitcoin slightly, transaction speed slightly slower. With Ethereum, I was like, oh my God, like within seven minutes, at the time it was like seven minutes, you can move this thing around and like, and there are all these tokens. And I, and I just was so enthralled by the ecosystem without having any technical knowledge whatsoever. Um, then I started getting as technical as possible, diving into smart, like I'm not an engineer by any means, but on a surface level, you know, 
I still have the knowledge to write direct to Etherscan to, you know, program certain things and whatnot. My little brother is a fantastic developer um, who's now actually an analyst at A16Z. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, even though I'm not a developer, I, I have a lot of friends who are and who, who teach me along the way. I love learning about this stuff. So 2017 was when I was really, be- I began to get really excited about the potential of the technology and how it could disrupt the entertainment world, not just music. And I actually decided to throw my own crypto music festival. Um, and the concept, the original concept for this was, um, we started working on it in 2017. We threw the festival in, in 18. The concept was that fans can pool money together to have you know governance power over what the lineup on the festival was, and then they yeah, could share in the profits of the festival. Of course, we couldn't do it because that kind of token would probably be a security after we spoke with expert counsel. Um, I did, I, you know, I did the whole flew down to, the, to Caymans, you know, tried to, you know, I, I learned a lot through this experience. We never issued a token, um, but we did throw a festival with rewards. Um, and we, we, we built a wallet. Actually, we ended up building a wallet with Stellar, with the Stellar Lumens team. Um, and it was a festival application with the set times. Then you could scan QR codes to get, um, you know, tokens that you could spend on, on merchandise. Basically, we were giving you free merchandise, but you had to, you know, engage with the ecosystem to get it for free. But you also got NFTs um, or, you know, tokens that represented your attendance, like proof of attendance. This was back in 2017, 2018. When wow, that's early. Early um, for that. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, my proudest moments is that there's this television interview. I'm, I'm talking on Fox Business News. Um, and the last thing I start talking about is NFTs. And that's when they kind of, the anchor uh, on Fox Business News kind of cuts, cuts me off to go to the next person. It's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. And if I was younger and riskier, I'd love to be a part of it and good luck. And it was like, right as I was mentioning like what NFTs were, and it looks like he's cutting me off in the interview. Imagine that a bracelet that you'd normally get for a festival that enables access, that could be represented by a digital asset that might be a non-fungible digital asset that you could trade between fans at different festivals and at different um, times. And that that non-fungible token might have a lot of value to somebody because it enables access to meeting your favorite artist. Justin, you are on to something, and, and I wish I were a little younger because I would be riskier and I'd want to be a part of this, but I wish you the best. It's Thank quite you. funny because that, that was really 2018 um, that I was really, you know, even though we started building this in 2017, 2018 is when we started executing. Um, and then, you know, not to, not to go too far, uh, at that point in time, I'd made a lot of personal crypto investments and, you know, in, in you know, m- less I, like ICOE stuff and more like projects that I really believed in long term. Um, projects VC, that VC or token stuff, or both. A little bit of both. So, like, I was I was Audius's first artist advisor four years ago, um, and you know, and then also invested in mostly invested in stuff that was already trading, as opposed yeah. to investing like entry level ICO stuff. Though I did do a couple. Um, I did not do many, um, only because I felt that the market was a little bit oversaturated with ideas and less execution. Um, which I think ended up being correct with, with a couple of exceptions. And then fast forward to now and, and, and the, everyone's actually using this stuff, right? Where, you know, before Ethereum was something you held in a wallet, now you're using it every day in, in the DeFi ecosystem, in the NFT ecosystem, right? And so what I find most interesting in the past year, or really two years, is all of these different layer one, you know, DAP compatible blockchains are, are starting to explode in, in actual use. And so we're seeing this revolution happen because the 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 ideas are now becoming reality, right? The ideas yeah. that people had four or five years ago are really becoming reality. And so um, when when COVID hit, 
I stopped touring. You know, I was still pretty active in music and, and crypto was always a passive interest. Um, but now I'm like not touring anymore. I wasn't really in the best mood or inspired to make music. And I kind of went full DeFi degen uh, pretty, pretty fast <laughs> last summer. Um, and, and all my friends in crypto, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm close with a lot of people who, you know, just through music, um, were full-time, you know, either engineers, solidity devs or founders in crypto. So all of those friends of mine were giving me advice on, on what to do. And that's when I kind of took a, a way deeper dive, um, I would say right after COVID hit. And then this past summer, you know, I kind of began to see this explosion of NFTs, um, or not, not this past summer, I guess the summer, summer of 2020, um, yeah. was kind of when NFTs exploded, but the manifestation was different. It was, it was through art, right. And it was the first time that you can authenticate digital art with a token and, Trevor Jones sold a, a, a Picasso crypto bull for $55,000 on Nifty Gateway. And my eyes lit up and I just said to myself, oh my God, it's time again. It's time to experiment again. And, um, you know, a, a year later, we've done, you know, I've done over over 20 million in NFT sales personally and then started a, started a company. So that's, uh, so that's that's kind of the longest version of the story I could. No, really that's fantastic. That was fantastic. And did you, I presume, you know, Andre RAC as well. Yes. Because he's been an inspiration because he was really the first person to me that kind of showed how all of this fits together. He'd figured it out. He was first. So, so Dre, um, I remember meeting Dre at, um, I think it was Ethereal in New York City. It was the Ethereal conference. It was either in 2017 or 2018. I don't remember. I think it was 17. Um, and we were the only two musicians there. There was nobody else. Um, but he was he was always ahead of the curve. Um, and was probably the first musician to really, I mean, it, it was RAC and, and also, um, also Imogen Heap, um, that were right. two musicians that really early on understood and believed in the technology. And I kind of came right after, after them and starting, you know, as a musician getting excited today, all of my DJ friends are excited, right? It's just, it's just <laughs> everybody is. I mean, I, I get more calls probably about music than anything else right now. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's so frontier. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about the music industry itself. You know, why you looked at crypto, looked at the industry you're in and thought, you know, there's things I can fix here. Talk, talk me through that whole understanding, because I think that really frames, you know, why everything all comes together at one time, right? COVID was a blessing in disguise. You're, you're, you're a champion at, at framing and asking questions and framing the story. So I commend you for it. Um, that's the best next question possible for me to answer. I think, you know, Rewinding a little bit, um, in my, throughout my DJ career, I was always pretty business-minded having that background, right? And was always active in pretty much every negotiation of every deal. Even though I had a team, I was always kind of a part of the conversation. And the one thing I noticed really quickly in music is that there, was, there were just so many imbalances between parties, you know, extraction of value, intermediaries, and systems that were just inefficient that didn't favor the artists and ultimately artists drive all the income in music. Everyone else is just meant there, you know, to support the artist. And so I kind of made this decision halfway through my career to start my own record label and become completely independent of, of the record label system, because I felt that not owning my rights in the long term would probably be a mistake um, because we were seeing kind of streaming take over payouts were kind of growing and the, the real winners are those who own their own rights. And so I kind of made this executive decision to go completely independent, 
and start releasing music independently, which ended up being the best decision ever. Because if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to do anything with, with NFTs that I've done, you know, in, in, in the recent year, because I actually control my own rights. But, but that's, that side of it, the, the, is only part of the income that gets taken away from you. So oh, yeah. Control so, of your own rights is a fraction of really what goes on here. Right. The same way a VC will seek like 10% ownership in your company and pay you for it. In, in music, commissions are, you know, extremely high. In many cases, artists end up with, I forget what the statistic is, but, but I'm pretty sure that of all the income generated in music, artists only end up with 12%, yeah. which is pretty insane, right? Um, it's awful. Compared to all it's the, bad. It's abusive. It's, it's bad. Yeah, it, that's, that's from a Rolling Stone article that I think was written in 2018. I'm sure you could you could search for if you search like 12% artists musicians rolling stone on google you'd find the article um but it's bad right and so the concept of disintermediation and then introducing a technology to facilitate that disintermediation specifically ethereum and now of course a lot of other awesome layer ones and you know potentially layer twos you know that was just so inspiring to me in general right um the second i learned about it i, I really couldn't keep away and, you know, what, what I was always concerned about having kind of played in both crypto realm and music realm, doing a social token or a fungible token carried a lot of risk. And I learned that from my project, right? Doing, doing one for Blau didn't really make any sense at the time. Um, and so NFTs kind of provided this new landscape where you can actually capture value surrounding art without creating something. Now, granted, a lot of speculation that happens in NFTs, um, but it's less. There, there's less legal risk, right? Um, as an individual to issue a token um, that's fungible versus art that's non-fungible, right? And even before I issued some of my first music NFTs, I spoke to the same council that advised my earlier projects in 2017, 2018, um, to really get a read on, you know, what the treatment of these assets might be. And the reality is, the government's extremely behind. Um, on 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 how any of this stuff works, um, the infrastructure bill is proof that, that you know most most decision makers in government have zero knowledge of of how crypto even operates, let alone they've probably never even performed a transaction, right? And so there's this innovate you know insane level of innovation happening today that laws just can't keep up with, and, and I imagine that's why a lot of people are are leaving. <laughs> um, I have a lot of friends that have moved to Puerto Rico. Um, obviously yourself, you know, you're based, not that you, I guess you, you weren't ever US based, but you know, people no, are, but still, I mean, the Cayman Islands has been a good place. I've seen a lot of people move to Portugal. We've seen a lot of people move to Singapore. You know, people are starting to spread to places that they're more comfortable with for this revolution. It, it, exactly. Because, you know, no one can deny any new technology creates its challenges, but, but no one can deny the power of all of this, right? Um, you know, being able to send stable coins on a weekend to your friend instead of waiting for the bank to open. I mean, these are like very simple use cases that are so obvious. I mean, you know, and, and even my parents, my parent, my dad, you know, has a background in finance as well, was originally skeptical and now is fully bought in because um, it's just it's just better, right? It's just better than existing systems. Um, and you also have all the benefits of aligned incentives and, and whatnot. But um but yeah, I mean, I, I guess like for me, you know, it's it's always kind of been from the moment I discovered the technology, it's it's always been in my head inevitable that that 
adoption would happen. It's just happening at, at a pace that I think none of us ever could have predicted. And maybe COVID was an accelerant to that. I don't know. But I think I think the the big accelerant accelerant, yes, there was all the narrative and COVID and all of that. I think NFTs were the big gateway drug because it's made it accessible to people in a way that wasn't finance. It was now culture. Once you tokenize culture and make culture an investment, you've changed the game on everything, which is why I was super interested in the music industry and this, because the two biggest drivers of culture, the three biggest drivers of culture in the world, music, fashion, sport. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Music, fashion, sports, and then, you know, television, entertainment, film. Yeah, but, but they um, will they will follow really where the others go. That's true. That's I think that's that's pretty true. That's that's pretty true. I think um you're exactly you're exactly right that NFTs were in many ways the gateway drug. And I like to say that, you know, owning point zero zero two Bitcoin means a lot less to somebody than owning an image, right? Like it's tangible. It's something in front of them. But but people really struggle to like own point zero five ETH. They're like, why, you know, or, or even point one ETH. They're like, oh, I want a whole ETH, but I can't afford it. And it's just the, this this Austrian economic way that we've been trained, you know, at least in the United States and, and across the world, that maybe prevents people from understanding crypto as a quote unquote currency. Whereas NFTs have now, just like you said, introduced this cultural component that is impossible to to stay away from. And so, you know, the way that relates to music is kind of where my story really comes in, um, where, you know, we, myself and my and my art director, Slime Sunday, were some of the first to, you know, mint music NFTs at all. At yeah, least can, talk knowledge. me through that ridiculous idea that you had, which ended <laughs> up being a massive success as well. Talk, talk me through that whole yeah. process, because I always love to hear how people think about these things, because it's quite brave to take the risk, right? You put yourself on the line and you don't want to look stupid. Yeah. I mean, the best way to insulate against that risk is 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 keeping things, I think, you know, doing experiments and keeping them reasonably priced, which of course that reasonably priced piece um, changed pretty quickly. Um, but but I've been talking to, you know, RAC and I have, have been close friends throughout this journey. And, you know, I, I remember chatting with him about the potential of NFTs and music um, last summer, or wait, not this past summer, the summer before that. So I guess over a year and a half ago. Um, and this is kind of right as DeFi was exploding and, and um, you know, everyone was doing visual NFTs. You had um, the premier artists at that time were uh, Pac, Trevor Jones, and, and Fuocious, and, you know, all names, household names today. Um, people didn't really come until a little bit later and was inspired actually by Pac to kind of join the movement. Um, but around that time, I, I was really inspired by Trevor Jones and Pac, but no one had done music. And so I just reached out to all the NFT platforms, I, you know, that I've now also all, all invested in. You know, I reached out to OpenSea, to Super Rare. Um, this is, yeah, summer of 2020. And I just started asking questions. I'm like, how do you think, what do you think music NFTs could even look like? And like, let's do some experiments here. And so the first iteration that of music NFTs that I experimented with was, you know, because all of these platforms were art focused, I felt there needed to be a visual element. So I teamed up with my art director, who's done all my album artwork and visuals for Blau for the past, you know, at least for the past six years. Um, he had he had reached out to me, basically saying a lot of his income had stopped because you know musicians stopped touring; they didn't need as much art, and so he was kind of looking for a new strategy. And I said, "Why don't we team up and I'll I'll release on you know I'll basically release unreleased music, like music that no one's ever heard before, as an NFT with a visual background." And that's how it all started. 
So I took these three ideas, these musical ideas that weren't on Spotify, no one had ever heard before. And we tokenized them with, with visual loops um, on ETH. And we sold them for 500, $200 to $500. And they sold out in seconds. And it was just like a moment, right? You know, it might not have been a crazy amount of money, I think. I think the total sale for that sale was 21000 But, that, you know, there was an auction that went for $12,000. Um, but we were just like, oh, my God, this is unmonetized art that we were both working on during COVID. And, like, this is cra- there's crazy that there's demand for this, right? And so we just kept pushing the boundaries with it, eventually getting to, you know, full-length songs that were unreleased um, with, with visual components. And then, of course, I did my album. Um, I basically tokenized my first album um, with my own, on, on my own website, with my own auction mechanic. Because you own the rights, you can do that relatively easy compared to anybody Ex- else, right? Exactly. So having owned my rights, I had the ability to kind of experiment with this stuff. Um, I wasn't locked into a deal that could exclude any of these experiments. And so fast forward to January of this past year, we did the first actual tokenized song, full-length song. So it was a song that I released. And then we tokenized the album artwork, the audio, and we sent the winners or the owners a physical um, sound wave, uh, physical piece. I wrote an article about it um, in um, The the Defiant, the uh, blog, about like how I thought music NFTs were going to evolve. And then one month later, we did an auction for the album that went for 11.7 million. And that's when kind of but did the, that the, not quite, the week like, after you, you oh, say sorry. that kind of offhand now, you must have thought fucking hell when that happened, right? It was so difficult to process. It was like, um, you know, we had no expectation. Um, we maybe expected, I, I like to keep my expectations low. Um, and you know, the previous sale of the song did like 250,000 and we were like, this is crazy. Oh my God. And, 250000 was crazy for a song. I mean, no record label would give you an advance of $250,000 for a song, let alone like at the time, none of these people had any rights in the song, right? So that was crazy in January. Then in February to hit this 11.7 number was just mental. And then the following week, and that was also, you know, what was significant about that auction that, you know, at the time people talked about is we actually built it on my own website with, actually, with a company that I, with a, crypt, a crypto company that I invested in, Origin Protocol. They helped me, their engineers helped me build a backend on my own website to host my own auction. So I didn't have to do it through a third-party pl- pl- platform and pay any wow, fees. Wow, interesting. Um, so it was the first kind of self-hosted NFT auction on, on a, you know, or, organic artist website. And we were really excited about that. And it did this crazy number. And then the next week was the Beeple auction. Literally the, the following week, that went for $69 million. And then everyone was like, okay, what's, what's, what's happening here? And... <laughs> um, and that was really, you know, the beginning of, of the next of the final chapter, which is the chapter that I've been living. Um, before since before we go on to the next chapter. Yeah, of course. Who bought the NFT? The, the so album. in the auction, I having studied economics, I, you know, with digital items, in any physical auction, there can only be one winner, right? Yeah. Scarcity of that item is, is coveted. And but, but you're missing all the other bidders willingness to pay on the demand curve. So I said to right. myself in the digital world, you can you can play with that a little bit and capture everyone's maximum willingness to pay um, with a leaderboard, right? So the auction that we built had 33 winning slots. And depending on your position in the 33, 
you got a different bundle of NFTs from the album. So the top winner got all the songs on the album and a bunch of other privileges, but everyone else down the line got a, ran you know, a random collection of songs from the album on a song by song basis. So not everyone got all 11 songs. Some people only got five, depending on where their position in the ranking was. Um, but it was an interesting way to capture everyone's willingness to pay. Um, you know, of course, if you, if you bid too high and didn't get kicked off, you'd get stuck, right? Cause you'd be, you'd be stuck in like 30th position, but at least you'd still win, you know, some of the NFTs, right? So we structured the, this is the first time anyone had structured an auction this way. Um, we call it like a ranked auction. Um, and it was just like kind of my economics background as an experiment, but we kind really of thought people would really be, clever. Cause it's, it applies a lot of behavioral economics to that too, in the way that people bid. Exactly. Now, at the time, no one had done it before. And I was like, I was thinking in my head, well, people are going to be smart and they, they're going to know that once they enter, like they're kind of stuck there and they have to like really get to the top to, to maximize their, their benefit. But it turned out the out, like, so, so I had assumed that maybe we'd only do a hundred thousand, you know, who knows it was on my own website. There was no external marketing. It was all marketing from me internally as an artist. Um, we ended up having like 3000 or fourth, like 3,500 total bids. But as that floor kept going up for that 33rd position, um, you'd have to now, now that minimum bid was 3000 to even get into the, get into the top 33, right? And then eventually that minimum bid became 80,000 and people were still going. Um, and the clock would reset every time there was a new, a new bid. So this thing went on for an hour and a half after the close. Um, and then everyone kind of had their final positions, the lowest bid being somewhere around 70, 80,000, the highest being 3.2 million. Amazing. What I also love about this is the music industry has a history of a being disrupted, but also creating these ideas. I mean, obviously, Bowie basically figurized tokenization out in when was it 96? With yeah. Bowie Bonds, which was genius. Mm -hmm. um, and Wu-Tang Clan did it with, they issued yep. a one of one, you know, yep. Uh huh. which exactly. was testing your hypothesis, the economic hypothesis it does scarcity drive value and they proved exactly. it. And then you've extended it by saying, okay, if scarcity buys, buys value, but larger participation can drive crowd behavior, which is basically what you did with the 33, you know, we get a, a, a more equal distribution and a better outcome for everybody. Exactly. And so since then um, we've done some really cool, you know, all these, all these buyers of these assets basically changed my life. Set, set up, you know, what is now the, my new company, Royal, um, which which seeks to kind of take all of this to the, ne to the next level, which we'll get to. Um, but one of the cool things about all the people that participated in that auction, and then the following, you know, we did another sale three weeks later of unreleased music. So the auction was the album. And then three weeks later, we did another sale of music that, you know, full length music with full art. Um, what we've what we recently announced was the auction winners are going to each get one percent ownership in all the rights in the album retroactively. So I kind of let all those winners know um, that's something that like we never originally planned on, but is kind of the motto of my new company. And then the winners of other pieces that we sold um, following that auction are getting a hundred percent ownership pro rata in the songs that that are tokenized when and we're going to actually release them on Spotify. So. Um, that means like, you know, and we can, there, there's more specifics there, but um, the company that I started is basically building all these tools to enable artists to pay out to treasury contracts and for fans to actually own the music that they listen to, own pieces of the music they listen to. 
Um, and that's kind of the next iteration where music NFTs started just as collectibles, but where they're, where they're going, in my opinion, is, is true ownership. Yeah, I, I think, again, and that was another piece of genius is now realizing that you'd actually built a community around people who owned these tokens and then give back to that community and then you use that community to create a new platform for. It's brilliant. So talk me through Royal. What was your idea here? I, I guess it's the story of this journey you've gone through. Yeah, and so this goes is like, off, right? you know, again, incredible at, at guiding the conversation on your, on your end. Uh, it, it's always fun to tell. It, it's been a while since I've told the full story, but you know, post this auction, there's, you know, now 17 at the time between the auction and then three weeks later, the additional sale that we did, um, 17 something million in sales, right? Which is higher than most record labels would offer any major, major artist um, in, in a, in a long-term predatory deal. And the entire music business starts calling. Like, how do we, how do we do this too? And I'm sitting there like, being very very honest with everyone saying like the only reason why this happened is because the crypto community wanted to make a statement and they know that i've been involved for a while and you know i have all these relationships with people in the crypto community that i've been kind of telling about you know how 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 nfts could reshape the music business and reshape patronage you know incentivize fans to participate as you know you know true aligned partners with an artist as opposed to just consumers right where Whereas the demand curve for music has been flat for decades. You could either buy a song for 99 cents or buy a subscription for $9.99. And that's the max you can pay for something that creates so much more emotional value, right? And so after my auction, I kind of tried to explain to everybody that, you know, what people were buying had nothing to do with the music. It had to do with the emotional value of owning probably the first music NFTs ever and what that might be worth in the future, right? Um, knowing that this was probably going to reshape an entire creative business. And so the idea behind Royal was, well, what's next? And it was actually inspired by, um, you know, my, my co-founder, JD, who's one of my best friends from college, who started multiple successful publicly traded companies like Open Door and Hymns. He's kind of been, he had been noodling on this idea of, you know, why shouldn't anyone be able to invest in anyone else at a core level? Um, you know, very, very kind of more, more like broad, uh, a broader concept. And then I had talked to Fred Arizm, you know, one of the founders of Coinbase and now, um, Paradigm, you know, partner, partner and founder of Paradigm. Um, and I was kind of just asking all my friends, well, what's next? Like everyone's asking me how to do this. And realistically, what we did was an experiment, but where I think it's going is, you know, fans can be your record label, right? When fans own your music, they're now incentivized in a completely different way to share it and to be a part of a community that is larger than just a consumption community, right? And that's the principle behind all tokens, right? Um, all, all tokens are, are, are tools for aligning incentives between different parties. Um, the difference here is, how do you do that with the arts? And so instead of thinking about music NFTs as just collectibles, the entire concept behind Royal was, how do we actually assign ownership in the IP of the songs when, when they're bought as NFTs when they're bought as art, right? How can, how can art, you know, how can fan bases for the first time ever invest in music? Because music is an asset class that just hasn't been, you know, no one's democratized access to this asset class. It's run by two parties, private equity firms and record labels. Yet there's so much value that's being uncaptured and fans are kind of the ones that are unlocking most of that value. So and, the and idea because is- there's a simple thing within this as well is 
artist, fans, marketing budget, lots of cost. Given the fans a share of the revenue, and they do your marketing for free. I mean, really? That's it. <laughs> and you create network effects. Simple as that. And so since we, it, it is as simple as that, right? It's not complicated by, by any means. It's just difficult execution, like dealing with regu the regulatory environment and, and IP law, right? And so we knew that when we started this company, we needed partners who were experts in their fields. So, yeah. you know, Keith Raboy from Founders Fund led, led the seed with Paradigm, Fred Arism, Coinbase, both with, you know, robust regulatory experience, Keith, have, you know, having been a securities lawyer, um, Fred having, you know, started Coinbase. Now we have, you know, Katie Hahn um, from A16Z and now who just recently announced she was departing. Um, uh, you know, who's also, you know, regulatory expert, former, former DOJ prosecutor, right? Um, and, and we beefed up our, our compliance team to solve this problem, like how can fans own songs too? And we tested this um, recently with a new song of mine where we, we gave away 50% of the ownership in the song in the form of a, an, an NFT, but we call them LDAs, which stands for Limited Digital Assets. Um, the, the company Royal, we, we mint LDAs instead of NFTs because they do a lot more than NFTs. And we think that non-fungible token is kind of just a bad phrase. It's a bad, so it's just bad. Crypto's so bad for doing this. It makes it so yeah. user unfriendly from day one, always. Yeah, yeah. So like limited digital asset felt like a better nice. term. So we call it an LDA. So we minted the first worst case um, LDAs that represented 50% ownership in one of my songs called Worst Case. And we gave it away for free. Why? No one had ever created a, a rights-bearing music asset on chain. And we had no idea how the market was going to price it. So we said, you know, if you sign up for Royal, the top 333 accounts, based on the number of referrals that they made, would get this asset for free. So we, we, we distribute this asset. And the, mar the market values the song at over $10 million. Are the cash flows even close to that? No. But it proves, you know, and some people are like, oh, it's purely speculative. No, it actually proves that ownership in music means a lot to people. Yeah. I mean, there's a total mismatch between the, the meaning, the, 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 the sheer value of the meaning of music in people's lives versus what they get charged. The only time artists can do it is in a live venue. Um, and that doesn't scale because you have to tour and you're exhausted. And it does right. It doesn't reach. It doesn't reach your thousand true fans like all the time. It reaches a bunch of, you know, people pay to, for tickets to see performances. But there are always there might always be a thousand people that are so hardcore they can't necessarily make it to every show, but they're willing to spend to have a relationship with you on a deeper level. And what we did with this worst case asset is proof that, you know, the same way a painting doesn't create cash flows, music does have cash flows associated with it, but. Human beings have never been able to buy music as art, but music is art, right? You can buy a lot of art. You can buy metal sculptures. You can buy paintings. You can buy even blueprints. Because music wasn't ever made scarce. Exactly. So you could endlessly print LPs or CDs or what or streaming, whatever, right? And suddenly, what what the the breakthrough that you're having here is? Oh, if I just don't accept that I need to give, it doesn't need to be the top of funnel and give it to everybody. But if I restrict the number, people will value it. It's like, it's, and it's so, a fantastic experiment and really meaningful as well. 
and I appreciate that. And it's been, it's been really a, it's an honor and, 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 and a dream to watch this all unfold in real time. I mean, I always try to keep my expectations low. And with this worst case asset, it was the first royal asset. We wanted the market to price it. And we've had over a million in, in secondary sales to support the valuation, right? It's not just a, a random valuation. Like there's enough, enough liquidity and volume to support, you know, the floor price times the number of additions that exist. Um, and so that was experiment number one. And now the company is scaling to kind of provide these services for all artists, right? And we think it's really powerful. So let's talk about all artists. So existing artist A, they've got nightmare IP rights. Some of them been resold to, to companies. Nobody knows how, how do they start afresh? Do they have to cut from their management or cut from their label? Or can they renegotiate the terms of which they operate? How the hell do they do it? So that's the number one question we get. The three questions we get is, how do you make sure artists are actually going to make payments to their, to, to their holders? Um, what happens if an artist already has an existing deal? right? And how do, how do you make sure that an artist is truly representing the rights that they own? Those are always the questions that we get. I'm thinking of the other side, being an artist being an artist. Can I do it? You know, that's the right. So, so the answer is quite simple. Yes. The inverse of those questions, basically, but carry on. So, so what's really cool is if you're signed, you still maintain ownership. It might not be a lot. You just have to represent that to your fans right now. The market will probably price 10% of something a lot differently than 50% of something. Right. Um, But if you're an artist and you still maintain 15% of your rights, there's some recoupable advances from a record label that, adds additional complication, but you can still make all those representations to your fans and say, Hey, look, I still have 15% of this. I want to sell you five. Now the market's going to decide how valuable that is, right? So if you're a signed artist, you can still use our product is, is kind of the point. Um, there's, there's also a bunch of intricacies on the IP side. But also what it tells me is at first it moves slowly then all at once, right? So what's going to happen is anybody can renegotiate terms that has a decent sized community will drop their record labels like hot potatoes as fast as possible. Well, what's interesting is I like to say that Royal is not competitive with record labels. It, it instead forces them to be more price competitive because yeah. uh, with Royal, we're not, we're a monetization SDK for artists. That's what we say. We're, we're a software developer kit for artists to monetize, but we don't provide the same services that record labels do. Record labels do provide marketing services, distribution, a, you know, A&R, all these other things that still have value. It's just that their deals are very farly, are, are, are poorly priced, right? So when a product like Royal exists, it, it kind of forces record labels to become more price competitive. And some artists will still need those types of services, but many don't, right? So it, it's nice to kind of create this alternative um, and, and basically force labels into more fair pricing models for, for their artists. Um, and that's not to say that we couldn't work with record labels who do own rights, who could exactly, as you said, cut artists in for more of the sales of, of, of whatever NFT represents this, the music, right? And so these are all the kind of complicated IP. This is the complicated IP maze that I navigate uh, 16 hours a day for the past eight months, um, but it's fun. And there's a lot of like tricks and, and you know, methods. And, you know, that's a, that's a three-hour conversation in and of itself. But Yeah, I mean... I was with Jack Splone uh, in Vegas last weekend and, you know, I give him a couple of drinks and he's both angry and in tears about how complicated that world is. It is. It is. And so like our perspective is just step by like brick by brick. You know, there's no way to solve the problem overnight, but 
if we keep proving the model works, more and more people will 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 make the decision to make their fans their record label. And the other thing I've been looking at this whole ecosystem, which I'm quite involved in, is the overlay is the social token. And we know, you know, again, it's a little more difficult to do, but the overlay of ties together the entire cultural community is not just the super scarce asset, it's the system of value exchange amongst everybody. Exactly. Where people it becomes composable essentially within the, the network and people can do stuff for it, everyone becomes your marketing engine and everything ties together. Exactly. I mean I mean the just aligning incentives is so powerful here. And we're beginning to explore what that looks like for creatives. But this is really just like the first chapter. There's a lot more to unlock. And, you know, the tools to unlock it are, are also just barely developing. I mean, gas costs are prohibitive for, for most fans to participate in this. You know, if it costs you $50 or even $100 to mint something, you know, most, most fans might not be able to afford owning that type of asset. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of really interesting things happen. We're going to see things with giveaways based on data, right? Like imagine you can give your top 1% listeners something for free. Give them ownership of what they've spent so much time listening to. There are a lot of artists that are interested in that kind of structure. Um, you know, kind of in my case, giving away ownership in my song. Um, and then we're going to see all types of token layered ecosystems built on top of what we're doing at Royal, which is at a base layer, how do you let fans own your music too? It's really as simple as that. And what tools do you need to execute that? And um, we're launching the platform in January. Um, we, we did kind of this beta test recently with my asset, and then we're launching four artists and ownership in their music in January, and we're, we're just super excited about it. I mean, look, I, I think what you're doing is not only brilliant, it's just important as well. I just, I just think, you know, you're at the forefront of something that is about to change everything. And it's just exciting. For you, great. You know, you've reinvented your career suddenly, randomly. And here you are now digitizing musical assets and stuff like that. Yeah. For me, you know, I, I'm certainly, I could, I could theoretically stop and just make music in my room all day and kind of fall off the face of the earth if I wanted to. But I feel a, a responsibility and, and like an, an insane fervor toward reaching this goal. And I think it's maybe because, you know, I feel this responsibility because I may have triggered some of the, you know, I think people and myself and a couple of others kind of just triggered this wave. Um, like projects like Larva Labs as well, you know, Top Shop, all these different parties. But no one's really unlocked music yet. And I wake up, you know, what drives me to wake up early every morning and what keeps me up until 2 a.m. every night is how do we push this forward? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I won't stop until we do because pretty much everyone agrees with the vision. It's pretty hard. It's hard. It's hard to disagree with the vision, right? It's just a matter of execution at this point. It is. And, you know, the final thing is I was talking before about when I was in Spain and Ibiza was just a cross and you just knew it was a special moment in time. This is another one of those moments, right? Oh, 100%. This this time and place it's fun it's exciting and the world is changing and it's 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 amazing it, it, it's it's fantastic and it's you know anytime i get a text from an old friend or a call from from a from a, someone i met recently asking for advice looking to get involved helping people set up their first self-hosted wallets i mean we haven't seen this kind of engagement in the history of crypto at this level 
Right. And, you know, prices aside, the inevitability of adoption is not really debatable anymore. So I think that's why all of us are so excited. It's like now is the time to push and grind the gears as hard as possible. And, uh, and we've, seen, we've seen it work. We've seen it working. Fantastic. Justin, look, really good. I will definitely get you back so we can talk more because I think we only scratched the surface here. Um, and I want to talk a bit more about the future, where we're all going, what's happening, just your general thoughts on the space and also catch up with where Royal's going because, you know, when are you launching? Feb or Jan? January will be the, kind of like the first sale. The first yeah, so we'll try and get you back first. once you've started, you know, yeah. seeing what's going on just because I'm super interested in this. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure. This was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Raul. Chat soon. Hey there. Since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film. We work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube. And there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.